The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, he lived in a time of epic upheaval and epic achievements. It was an age of empire, ancient Roman empire, presided over by Rome's first great emperor, the mighty Augustus. One might expect a lowly poet to cower in the shadows of such a figure, but Virgil's poetry was so great, so respected, and so valued that he managed to find his own path through the turbulent world of politics and power. We talk about Virgil with his translator and biographer, Sarah Rudin, Today, on the History of Literature. Okay, hello, 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 everyone. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast. Did you miss me? (laughs) We did a single episode last week for the first time in a few years, I think. Well, that's going to be our new schedule, down to one a week. Maybe a few weeks we'll do a Thursday episode, but for the most part, it's Mondays from here on out. I think this is largely due. (laughs) Oh, here we go. Off to a great start. (laughs) Maybe I should leave that in, show you I'm sickly and frail. Not so much. I'm actually feeling pretty healthy, but I do feel the burdens of the show, which is why we're going down to one a week. Hopefully... That will come with some benefits as well. We're pursuing an increase in quality in exchange for the reduction in quantity. And I hope you can appreciate that. And also, we're going going broke, basically. Broke and frazzled. And here's where I could point you toward our donation page at historyofliterature.com slash donate and our Patreon account at patreon.com slash literature. But I won't do that because, hey, I realize I'm cutting the production down, and that's a bad time to ask for a raise. I once talked to a guy who had left his job, and I said, why did you take the new job? What appealed to you about it? And he said, well, it was a good time in my life for a change because I had just had a new baby, and the new job required few hours and was more meaningful and had better opportunities. On the other hand, it paid more money. (laughs) I said, wait, wait. Wait, I think I misheard you. You got a higher salary. Yes, that's right. And it's a better job. Yes, it's more meaningful. Yes, it paid more. That's right. It was just, and then he says, it was just the right time for me with the new baby and all. And I said, well, what do you mean? It was the right time. (laughs) What do you mean? On the other hand. You got a job that paid more money and was better and had more opportunities and was more meaningful. 
Where's the trade-off there? Wouldn't it, what, what do you mean it was the right time? Because it, wouldn't that always be the right time? Even if you never had a baby? What am I not getting here? And anyway, now I see. Wait, I'm not even sure why I brought this up. <laughs> it doesn't relate to the podcast or to me as a podcast. See? See how exhausted I am? No wonder I need a break. And you're probably thinking... You were never this crazy when you were doing two episodes a week, Jack Wilson. Your points tended to make sense. Well, maybe I'm still decompressing from that stretch. There's bound to be some bumps along the way. So, deep breath. Let's talk about our show today. Sarah Rudin is here. She'll tell us all about Virgil. And then, oh, we'll do a My Last Book. But before we, before we even get to Sarah... Let's do something fun here. I ran across an article that was kind of a real life, my last book, for none other than Charles Darwin, the celebrated scientist. They have published his reading list. He was a great reader and keeper of books, as one might expect for such a, an intellectual giant and creative thinker. And of course, he read novels broadly, as it seems every great 19th century person did. For us today... I'm not sure that would be the case. Maybe film is as close as we'll get to that. I don't think novels are read by every great scientist today, and I'm almost positive that poetry isn't. But most of them, most of our great thinkers, have probably they probably go to the movies or they probably watch them on Netflix or wherever, so they're probably getting a dose of humanity and culture that way, one hopes. For Darwin... Things were different. And guess what? I just remembered the point of my story about the guy with the new job. Let me wrap that up. I was thinking about the podcast and how things are going here in 2024. And I thought, hey, on the one hand, we're not making as much money these days thanks to changes in the marketplace. But on the other hand, I'm not having as much fun doing the podcast. <laughs> I'm, like my, I'm like that guy with the new dream job, but in reverse. That's not a good, on the other hand, to have. So I decided, well, at least if I'm going to keep doing this thing, I might as well have some fun, and maybe we'll lose a few listeners. Maybe. And maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the way to do it. We rose, and now we'll fall. We'll drive it right off a cliff, and we'll just keep the pedal on the floor as we descend. And then eventually we can say, hey, we crashed this thing. We really really did it. How did it take so long in retrospect? But hey, it was our foot on the pedal and we had a thrill and at least we felt like we were alive right up to the point where we weren't. That's the other hand. On the one hand, this is a disaster, but on the other hand, it will also be a disaster. <laughs> I like the latter disaster better than the former. Let's put it that way. Okay. Charles Darwin. Speaking of a lack of survival for the unfit. Charles Darwin had a vast personal library, it turns out. Thousands of books and journals and other reading materials. It takes 300 pages just to catalog everything that he had. And now that catalog is all online. You can take a look for yourself at what Charles Darwin was reading. And naturally, I'm interested in the literature that he had, just as I'm fascinated by, let's say, Napoleon, on campaign, reading novels. That is my kind of impulse. 
when the stuff is really hitting the fan, we pull out the Proust or the Graham Greene or the Kafka. Hey, why not? Double down. <laughs> or George Eliot or Virginia Woolf or Rilke. When it's truly, truly, truly bad, I'm reaching for Chekhov, just as those 19th century people reached for Goethe or Sir Walter Scott. But I also turn to literature when times are good or when I'm in need of inspiration. So here's an inspired guy, Charles Darwin. One might think he didn't have too much time to read or read fiction, but he did. And one might wonder, well, who? Dickens, perhaps? That's a good guess. Shakespeare, one assumes. How about Milton? How about George Eliot? How about Blake? And so we turn to darwin-online.org.uk to find out. We did know some of this already, by the way. We knew from auction sales records that would sell books in his possession. And we knew from that that he had a copy of the 1826 article, Account of the Habits of the Turkey Buzzard, parens, vultura aura, close parens, particularly with the view of exploding the opinion generally entertained of its extraordinary power of smelling. <laughs> and hey, I'm not I'm not trying to disparage that classic work. You can check our archives. We did a three-part episode on the account of the habits of the turkey buzzard Fultura Aura, particularly with the view of exploding the opinion generally entertained of its extraordinary power of smelling. Now that article is that that, that article's place in the history of literature needs no apology. No further explanation than that. But that's not exactly what I'm after here. So I scroll through the catalog. Of course, Darwin did have Shakespeare, the full 10-volume set of all the plays with notes by Dr. Johnson. We're off to a great start. He also had 12 volumes of the works of George Eliot. I don't believe he had William Blake, although he did have the poetical works of Lord Byron in six volumes. He also had all of Wordsworth, along with Wordsworth's description of the scenery of the Lake District, including five letters on the geology of it. Not a surprise. Darwin had three and a half works by Percy Shelley. I say a half a work because one of the volumes was of Keats and Shelley combined. He did not have Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which I thought he might. Being a man of, of science and where it might lead, didn't have it. He had Milton, of course, both Paradise Lost and a collection of three volumes of the poetry. He had 17 novels and collected stories by Charles Dickens, of course. No Tolstoy or Flaubert, no Russians at all, really. He was a little early for that. The translations hit it big a little after Darwin. He didn't have the poetry of John Donne, but he did have a biography of him. And he had Mansfield Park, Emma, Persuasion, and Sense and Sensibility from our beloved Ms. Jane Austen. But let me go through that list again. Mansfield Park, Emma, Persuasion, and Sense and Sensibility. What do you hear there? No pride and prejudice. That's pretty fascinating. Although, maybe we can think 
he read it and reread that one so much that it fell apart and he had to throw it out. Or maybe he loved it so much he, he loaned it to someone, to someone he thought might benefit from it. Maybe. We will never know. And then we come to my last book. We're back in the world of auction commentary, comments from auctions, and we hear that, that he had a copy of Elizabeth Gaskell's 1880 novel, Wives and Daughters. We know he had several books by Mrs. Gaskell. And hey, before you complain that I'm calling her Mrs. Gaskell, that's how she was known. One of the books in Darwin's library was titled literally Mrs. Gaskell's Works in three volumes. He also had a copy of North and South, Sylvia's Lovers, Cousin Phyllis, and then this copy of Wives and Daughters. Wives and Daughters is a wonderful novel, the story of the daughter of a widowed doctor living in a provincial English town in the 1830s. Gaskell had not quite finished the book when she died, but another writer wrapped it up. Its subtitle is An Everyday Story. An inscription on the copy in Darwin's life, the one he had, is from Darwin's wife, Emma, to their son, Leonard, and she wrote, quote, This book was a great favorite of Charles Darwin's and the last book to be read aloud to him. He died on April 18, 1882. The book was first published in 1865, which gave Charles Darwin 17 years to enjoy it. And one wonders why this great man enjoyed the book and why he turned to it last. We can't ask him. But I've gone back to the book and I thought, well, maybe we'll find something in the last paragraph or two that made him want to hear it. Choked up a little bit there, but not because of emotion, just a dry throat. <sighs> okay. So we turn to the last few pages of this novel and here we find not the novel itself, but the concluding remarks by the editor. And I think maybe this is why Charles Darwin turned to it last. I'd like to think so anyway. Here we go, though. Let's do the last two paragraphs of the book as completed by Mrs. Gaskell to give you a flavor of what Charles Dar Darwin would have been listening to in his final days. But Molly stood out against the new gown for herself and urged that if Cynthia and Walter were to come to visit them often, they had better see them as they really were, in dress, habits, and appointments. When Mr. Gibson had left the room, Mrs. Gibson softly reproached Molly for her obstinacy. You might have allowed me to beg for a new gown for you, Molly, when you knew how much I had admired that figured silk at Brown's the other day, and now, of course, I can't be so selfish as to get it for myself, and you to have nothing. You should learn to understand the wishes of other people. Still, on the whole, you are a dear, sweet girl, and I only wish, well, I know what I wish, only dear papa does not like it to be talked about. And now cover me up close and let me go to sleep and dream about my dear Cynthia and my new shawl. That's the last paragraph. As you can see or hear, it is an everyday story. That's what Charles Darwin had heard for a few hundred pages. But then we get this. 
concluding remarks by the editor of the Cornhill magazine. And listen to this. The editor writes, quote, Here the story is broken off, and it can never be finished. What promised to be the crowning work of a life is the memorial of death. A few days longer, and it would have been a triumphal column, crowned with a capital of festal leaves and flowers. Now it is another sort of column, one of those sad white pillars which stand broken in the churchyard. But if the work is not quite complete, little remains to be added to it, and that little has been distinctly reflected into our minds. We know that Roger Hamley will marry Molly, and that is what we are most concerned about. Indeed, there was little else to tell. Had the writer lived, she would have sent her hero back to Africa forthwith, and those scientific parts of Africa are a long way from Hamley, and there is not much to choose between a long distance and a long time. How many hours are there in twenty-four when you are all alone in a desert place, a thousand miles from the happiness which might be yours to take if you were there to take it? End quote. There's more here about traveling and about the novel and the projections for it, all the plot points to wrap up and the characters and their destinies. And you could see why the novel appealed to Darwin, a great traveler himself. And then, after a few paragraphs wrapping up the book, we get this. Quote, but it is useless to speculate upon what would have been done by the delicate strong hand which can create no more Molly Gibsons, no more Roger Hamleys. We have repeated in this brief note all that is known of her designs for the story, which would have been completed in another chapter. There is not so much to regret, then, so far as this novel is concerned. Indeed, the regrets of those who knew her are less for the loss of, a no of the novelist than of the woman, one of the kindest and wisest of her time. But yet, for her own sake as a novelist alone, her untimely death is a matter for deep regret. It is clear in this novel of wives and daughters, in the exquisite little story that preceded it, Cousin Phyllis, and in Sylvia's lovers, Darwin, by the way, let me interrupt, Darwin had all these books, by the way. Back to the quote. It is clear says the editor's note, that Mrs. Gaskell had within these five years started upon a new career with all the freshness of youth and with a mind which seemed to have put off its clay and to have been born again. But that put off its clay must be taken in a very narrow sense. All minds are tinctured more or less with the muddy vesture in which they are contained. But few minds ever showed less of base earth than Mrs. Gaskell's. It was so at all times, but lately even the original slight tincture seemed to disappear. While you read any one of the last three books we have named, you feel yourself caught out of an abominable wicked world, crawling with selfishness and reeking with base passions, into one where there is much weakness, many mistakes, sufferings long and bitter, but where it is possible for people to live calm and wholesome lives. And, what is more, you feel that this is at least as real a world as the other. The kindly spirit which thinks no ill 
looks out of her pages irradiate. And while we read them, we breathe the purer intelligence which prefers to deal with emotions and passions which have a living root in minds within the pale of salvation and not with those which rot without it. This spirit is more especially declared in Cousin Phyllis and Wives and Daughters, their author's latest works. They seem to show that for her, the end of life was not descent amongst the clods of the valley, but ascent into the purer air of the heaven-aspiring hills. End quote. The note continues for a few more paragraphs, but I'll stop there because that's where I think Darwin's mind may have been. Here was a man who devoted himself to science and scientific discoveries, and whose body traveled to distant places, and whose mind was an even more adventurous explorer. And yet, he didn't limit himself to journal articles or books about the natural world. He read deeply in the world of fiction, in the hearts and minds of his fellow humans, who were attempting, and listen to, listen to this description again, of the world as the editor wrote it. An abominable, wicked world, crawling with selfishness and reeking with base passions. Does that sound like the world that Charles Darwin was identifying? Possibly, right? Crawling with selfishness, striving to get ahead, kill or be killed, survive and conquer, put your stamp on the evolutionary parade. But here's Mrs. Gaskell. She's doing something else, and Darwin is reading her or having her read aloud to him in his final days. He was in the hearts and minds of his fellow humans. That's, what he, that's where he wanted to be. Those humans who were attempting with all their flaws to be kind and decent and wise and good. Mrs. Gaskell had preceded him on her journey, and she had ascended into some lofty hills. And those were, perhaps, hills that Darwin, too, wished to climb. The hills not just of success and knowledge, but the success of Knowledge, which means that you know things, but you also know what those things mean. Sounds like I'm talking in riddles, but that's not my plan here. My plan is to put on Darwin's shelf and in Darwin's ears the story of some women in provincial England, tales told by a novelist, because in seeing those fortunes rise and fall, in seeing decisions desperate and deliberate, we see what's good about human life and also what's flawed. And understanding both is a great goal for anyone in life at any time, but for Darwin in particular, it was highly appropriate. Discovering what's good about life and what's flawed, it's hard to imagine anyone more dedicated to that pursuit than he was. Mm. We will have another My Last Book today. Well, let's who? Who should we? Let's stick to ancient Rome. How about that? And we'll hear from. Tom Holland. But first, we turn to the world of Virgil with Sarah Rudin after this.
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor and their delicious ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing, chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup, and you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com literature50 to get 50% off. Okay, joining me now is Sarah Rudin, who is an award-winning classic scholar, a poet, and a widely published writer on religion and culture. Her many translations of Greek and Roman works include Virgil's Aeneid. Sarah Rudin, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you for having me. It's delightful to be here. So I thought before we turn to Virgil and his life, we might just talk a little bit about the Aeneid uh, maybe we could just start with what the poem is about. I know you've translated it, and I'm interested in asking you about that, but let's just get on the table. What is that poem about, and why is it so good? It's about the founding of the Roman nation by Aeneas, a Trojan refugee after the fall of Troy. And with his fellow refugees, he wanders adventurously in the Mediterranean, and he then battles indigenous Italian people for the right to settle in Italy. Mm. So Virgil, I guess we can say, uh, was influenced by Homer. It sounds like he kind of used that as a model in some ways of what he wanted to make his epic poem about. Yeah, Homer reversed in simple Mm. terms. Mm -hmm. The first part of the Aeneid, the first six books, is like the Odyssey. It's about adventurous Mediterranean wanderings, and it has 
you know, derivatives of the same incident. There's a cyclops incident, for example. Then the second half of the Aeneid is like the Iliad. It's a mm. war poem. Mm-hmm. Right. And what stands out about it? Is it, uh, I mean, is Virgil, is it his brilliance as a poet? Is it his storytelling? Is it a little bit of all of the above? Well, it is the signature epic of imperial Rome, mm, um, mm-hmm. which was the most powerful nation before the modern era. Mm-hmm. So authoritarians have been fond of the Aeneid's message of benign, divinely favored conquest and rule. But as a translator, I simply love the exquisite Latin. Virgil made an astonishing advance on any previous epic poetry that the Romans had done. It's a derivative form, the epic, doesn't fit entirely well into Latin, but Virgil was such a genius that he made it work, and he made it work very beautifully. Right. So what was it like to translate the Aeneid? It was tough. It was reverent. It was intimidating. Yeah. But it was only after I started extensive revisions for the second edition of the translation, and this was around 10 years after the first edition was published, uh, that I really understood how exquisite a job Virgil had done mm-hmm. and how impossible it is to imitate him. But right. I think I have tried harder than anybody. I, I don't teach. I'm just an author. So I could spend virtually unlimited time on the work. And I didn't begrudge that time. Yeah. Now, did you feel like you were getting into the mind of Virgil? Did you feel like you were getting to know him as a person or were or does his verse kind of sit there and you get to know his verse without getting to see the man behind the verse so to speak uh i think it's the latter because mm. mm-hmm. um, working on the verse you can certainly recognize his perfectionism yeah. in the beautiful effects in so many lines but i didn't know at the time many of the facts about his remarkable life I didn't know, for example, about his slowness in speaking and his striking shyness. He was, in some sense, a broken person. He was not all there in the way gentlemen Romans were all there. They were very social, and he wasn't. Mm. Uh, He was, uh, he may have had a learning disability, and he struggled his way through school. He had a try at a rhetorical career. He did some philosophical study, but he, I think, emerged into his adult career, into his fame, in fact, as still a broken person. Right. And that was remarkable to confirm writing his biography. Yeah. So I know he's been described as a shadowy figure. Is that because there's a a lack of source material or is it, is that more, does that more go to just the type of person he was that he shunned the limelight, for example? Uh, these two things are, are related. Mm-hmm. There's no sign that he had any real friends. He spent time with his patrons and with his handlers and with other poets because that was required within the patronage system that the Romans practiced. So we have an idea of of people being very fond of him, of admiring him, and cherishing his company. But we hear about him that when he had to go to Rome to meet these people, 
he would be recognized in the street and he would duck into houses. Right. He would duck away from, from meeting people, just ordinary members of the public who loved his work and wanted to meet him. This is not a very Roman way of dealing with publicity. Yeah. Uh, Romans, as a rule, they loved fame, they courted fame, and they lived their lives in public. Right. Uh, he didn't. <laughs> so what sources do we have? Were there any uh, contemporaneous accounts? It sounds like there are at least some contemporaneous references, and I'm guessing there were some uh, you know, accounts that maybe came after his life and so on. But what do we have, and how reliable is it? Well, there seems to have been an account written soon after his death by mm-hmm. one of his handlers. That is somebody who knew him pretty well. Mm-hmm. And also did some research, asked around, found out what people were saying anyway about his childhood, if not confirmed facts about his childhood, about his earlier life. And But this work is lost, and we have to go more than a century later mm-hmm. to Suetonius. So he's writing around the transition from the first century A.D. to the second century A.D., he he seems to have some good material on hand, but by this time, of course, um, any eyewitnesses were long dead, and other you know sources of information had 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 faded away. So we have this one fairly good but short and derivative account. But then the biographical tradition goes completely haywire, mm. and we jump several centuries into the future, and people are just making things up. You get longer biographies. They're obviously derivative of Suetonius because they repeat a lot of that information. But then they just add information that's obviously fantastic. Mm. Uh, It's mythical. Uh, Some of it's influenced by the Bible. So you you have, for example... You have Virgil as an obscure person working in the stables, and he is he's um, a sort of veterinarian to the to the horses, and he is summoned before Augustus, the most powerful man in the world, and he is asked to interpret portents. He is asked to tell about the future, including the future of the country's agricultural prosperity. So what does what does that remind you of? It's obviously biblical. <laughs> right. And that that is not what happened, of course, to his, the historical Virgil. People are just making things up. So I guess I mean what would be their motive? I guess I guess the Aeneid was probably a popular poem and, and whoever was writing the the mythology of it thought they could sell some books or or entertain people or something by saying, well, I can, we have gaps in the life of this author, and I'll just tell a good story about the author. Does that seem to be what happened? Well, Virgil was an author in his very own class. Mm. There was nobody whose work was as famous as his or as revered as his. And it went straight into the school curriculum, and it just stayed there. So, the idea was that you could not know enough about Virgil. So we have the famous commentator Servius, this is centuries after Virgil's life, who writes notes to, to Virgil's work 
very, very copious notes. Some of them reliable matters of geography or mythology, and some just made up. Uh, His his sources, of course, were not good. You didn't have the reference works that you would have had in this day and age. So it's just a mountain, a tsunami of information about Virgil's work. And then his declarations about what his life was come in there, too. Yeah. It's a very little value when you study Virgil as you learn Latin or in a graduate program. There's almost no reference to Servius. It doesn't really help you understand Virgil. Right. So people people are just piling, piling on, and you, you're supposed to be talking about Virgil's work. So you are increasingly just talking to yourself, and the height of that is the work of Dante. Mm. Yeah. Where Virgil, Virgil's the guide to the, the entire yeah. <laughs> universe. In fact, he has to stop short of heaven. He can't go there because he is not Christian. But it's just Virgil as a personality or as a mythical personality just expands and expands and can stand for anything. He, yeah. can, he can stand for the entire wisdom about a soul's fate in Christianity. Right. Just imagine Yeah. Now, for you as a biographer, I mean, on the one hand, I could see taking an approach where you'd say, well, I'm going to I'm going to clear out all of the mythology and and the legend making and so on and and just try to stick to the facts and write the biography. And I could also see you saying, well, this is kind of part of his legacy. And and it would be interesting to go into some of these and and to point out that they aren't well founded. But did you consider including all the uses of Virgil, or did you stick to the sort of birth and death of the man? Uh, I stuck with his birth and death as parameters. Right. And I I referred to the other stuff only to show the immense impression that he made already in his his lifetime, Mm. because his, his work itself and his life which was so withdrawn so that people could write what they wanted on it, those were the impetus to the mythologizing. Mm, mm -hmm. He was, to some degree, a very tantalizing blank book. You just write what you wanted in that. So if if I had decided to to go into his reception, I would have written a 1,500-page volume of reception studies. And um, right. I, I happen to know uh, <laughs> someone who, who is a great expert on Virgil's reception. Her name is Susanna Braun. She's recently retired from the University of British Columbia. And you can write, say, a whole book about Virgil in this or that Eastern European country, mm. how the Virgilian idea of nationhood and the Aeneid, you know, informed both imitations of the Aeneid spin-offs and uh, you can the, the, it, it's just unlimited what you can write it did appeal to me that so little was known about him because then I could face with some courage the writing of a biography about him mm-hmm. it was something that I could handle it wouldn't just open and open and open yeah right okay so you're focused on the person as he lived in his life, you're dealing with uh, kind of a, a relative uh, paucity of, 
of source material. What kind of person emerged from your search? Some things were quite disturbing. Mm. Um, I already knew that that he was known in his lifetime as a gay person, mm. but I didn't know that he was a recipient of slave boys' gifts. Mm. His handlers would supply him with these boys, and that was horrifying. You can tell yourself, well, this was the culture, this was the normal thing, and these so-called favorites, these these delicii, were not hidden in, in Roman social life, but delicii would be your public catamite. Mm. He would be seen with you. Um, and you would not be ashamed of, of having this person around. Your wife might not like it. There might be a lot of tension within the family, but you know, this was not forbidden, let alone outrageous. So you, you know that, you know, you put the cultural context around it. Yeah. But, you know, that doesn't really help in the end. Yeah. When you say that his handlers supplied them, you mean, who were his handlers? Are these, I mean, was he wealthy and, and these are the people who are procuring things for him? Or, or do you mean handlers like his publishers or the people who were sponsoring him? Well, there, there was nothing like the modern publication system. Mm-hmm. So his publisher would have been Augustus, the emperor, yeah. or Mycenas, who was the cultural director for Augustus for, for many years. Yeah. So what you did to publish a work is that you simply you simply released copies of it. The people at the top of the literary salon in the imperial palace, they would be the the people who would release these copies. They would hire very good copyists, of course, or this would be originated at wherever Virgil was staying. He didn't, interestingly, seem to have had a fixed home. He just stayed with people. Anyway, so the, the process, of course, would emerge in his study, in his in his workroom, and he would he would have assistance. He was not wealthy in his own right, it seems. He simply was given gifts. He was given money. He was given houses, you know, none of which, of course, he seems to have settled in. And he was given slaves. So that's how the Catamites come into it. And this was, of course. It was very odd, okay, if he's a guest in various places with various wealthy people who are connected to the imperial household, who are political cronies of Augustus, then he's being supplied with everything that he wants or needs. And so that means he's being fed, of course. Uh, he has people waiting on him. And but these slaves seem to be given to him on a permanent basis for his use. And that's where it gets horrifying to a modern mind. Yeah. So there's a sense of pity. He he's somebody who couldn't, according to to ancient mores, yes, he could abuse slave boys, but he couldn't have an adult equal erotic partner with whom he could have a home. Mm. That was the big no no. And it was almost inconceivable in the ancient world. There's some stories that seem to allude toward um, erotic partners who, in very special circumstances, as, for example, they were comrades in war, 
in a special system that encouraged this. There's some kind of, there's stories that, that um, you know, they may have been recognized as permanent erotic partners, but you really do not hear about households. You certainly do not hear about these couples raising children. So that was, of course, unthinkable for Virgil. It's certainly not something the Romans ever, ever attempted, even if the Greeks did. So he was alone. He didn't, he did not have a partner. He could not have a partner, a true partner. And I think that's why he avoided having a home, because a home implied that you would be married, you would be having children, you would have a permanent setup, you would entertain, you would have lots of social obligations. He didn't want to do that anyway in terms of his professional calling. He wanted to to dedicate as much time as possible to the verse. He didn't want it to be an avocation. And that was the way that, that Romans tended to understand it. You would be a general, you would be a statesman, and then you would dabble in poetry. And Augustus actually had a bunch of these people in his circle, and some of them were quite important statesmen, diplomats, generals, Mycenaeus, for example. And then they dabbled in poetry. And predictably, the poetry was terrible. (laughs) I mean, awful. Mycenaeus poetry, we have scraps of it. It's just laughable. Yeah. But Virgil was different. Virgil, he was devoted. He was utterly devoted. Yeah. And he was rewarded with exquisite achievement. But then he has to somehow handle all of these people around him who are poetasters, and they want to compete with them. Mm. They are apparently totally (laughs) shameless, and they're demanding flattery, recognition. They want to be thought of as his peers. And early on in his first work, The Eclogues, he is referring to them. He refers to a bunch of them. But on a closer reading, he's being sarcastic. He's being really mean. He's getting in a lot of nasty digs against these people to whom he begrudges attention. Mm. That's crystal clear to me. Mm. Okay, let's take a quick break and come back with more from Sarah Rudin. Okay, we're talking about the ancient poet Virgil, and we're we're getting quite a picture of him as someone who, on the one hand, would be a bit of a, a potential outcast or or someone who's not in step with the the mores of the day, and at the same time, somebody who has kind of a almost a higher calling of poetry and is taking it more seriously than some of the others who are also have professional careers like generals and so on, but. Do we know how he got started with poetry and how he came to the attention of the emperor? 
did he just do this on his own? And then, you know, it was good enough that it started to attract some notice? Or was he in a school where this, were there competitions or something? Or how did he get started doing this? Well, we don't know specifically how he came to the emperor's attention, though we have some idea because there were professional poets, full-time poets in this circle, people like Propertius Tibullus and most notably Horace. Mm. Now, Horace was a freedman's son with a fantastic gift for poetry, and he had an elite education father sacrificed to train him in Rome. And then he had a, a brief, a rather silly career as a, as a soldier. I mean, then he fell into the Roman bureaucracy in which he was discovered um, and, and introduced to Augustus as a poet who could make the emperor look very good. So that's how it could happen. You were interviewed, as Horace was, a couple of times, and then you were included in the emperor's social circle. So you would, for example, travel with him. He's going on a diplomatic mission, and all this time you would be writing. We don't know specifically how this happened with Virgil, because he certainly wasn't in the position of a, a freedman's son, having to work for his, for his living. He was the young adult. He was living around Naples. He was studying philosophy, and he was writing poetry at that stage. We don't really know much about his early work for sure. There's a tantalizing group of alleged Virgilian compositions. Now, this would be as much of it as is real is his apprentice work. Mm, and mm -hmm. we just don't know how much is real. Some of it can't be real because yeah. the dates don't work. And, you know, references cannot be references that he made but some of it, I think, could be his work. So he was working on things that resemble the work of a revolutionary group of poets one generation before him, and that's the Neoteric poets. Mm. And we only have substantial work from one of them, and that is Catullus. Oh, right. Our old friend Catullus. <laughs> our, our old friend Catullus. So they were drawing on the model of the Alexandrian Greeks who were working around the Greek imperial court in Alexandria, Egypt. And they were writing rather precious poetry, personal poetry. They were very inventive poetry. And, and so Catullus is like that. And he writes, for example, a mini epic, an apillion. Mm. And uh, Virgil, among the alleged early works of Virgil, there's, there is a mini epic pretty plausible apprentice work. We don't have a very good version of it. It's all of the early work is badly copied. It's, you know, full of mistakes, full of garbage, not at all like the Aeneid and, and his other confirmed poems. So, yeah, he had an apprenticeship. And one of the things I think is ridiculous is that the modern scholarly establishment has so firmly resisted the idea that Virgil wasn't always all that good, mm. that he was a teenager, that he was a man in his young 20s, just fumbling around, trying to find a style, trying to develop some quality in his work, trying to find his feet. 
I think it's entirely plausible that he spent many years this way because they said that he his speech was slow, it was rustic, it was like that and almost like that of an uneducated person. Now, such a person with a learning disability might struggle longer to find his mode of expression, but then the mode of expression that he does find might be unique. It might be more refined, might be more beautiful than other people's mode of expression, just because he's used to working so hard. Right. You hear about people with dyslexia, you know, getting PhDs, and they get used to, you know, working 14, 16 hours a day. They just have to do it, and then they have that work ethic, and they have a habit of just not quitting until they get something just right. So possibly this is Virgil, the young Virgil, but yeah. there's no way to know for sure. Yeah. And what do we know about the emperor's treatment of him? Do we, I mean, my understanding is that he became quite a favorite and was highly valued by Augustus himself. Right. Yes. Um, that, that seems to be the case. Now, Suetonius quotes one letter that Augustus wrote to Virgil. And in this letter, Virgil, who is obviously far away, is supposed to be working on the Aeneid and delivering pieces of it, all finished. But he's not doing this because Augustus is, according to Suetonius, who's seen the whole letter, he's combining teasing and threats. Right. <laughs> so he's trying to josh Virgil out of this work, and or he's trying to josh this work to completion, but he's also reminding Virgil that the money's going to be cut off, mm. that things are going to become unpleasant if Virgil does not pony up. Right, with more verse. <laughs> but Virgil, you know, was apparently not having any of this because it took an extraordinarily long time to produce the Aeneid. He's producing it at the rate, average rate of two lines a day. Mm. And we hear about his work habits, how he went over it and over it and over it and started with outlines, with rough drafts, just worked and worked until he got exactly what he wanted. He would bring drafts to small groups of auditors and get their advice. You wouldn't think this would be worth much, but I, I think he was just struggling. And maybe having to demonstrate that, yes, he was trying. It appears that, that Augustus succeeded in speeding him up and getting this masterpiece out of his vice-like grip. Yeah. It wasn't finished completely, even when Virgil died. There are a lot of half-lines that remain in it. So this is kind of the story of Virgil's professional life, that a lot of attention is is focused on him by very important people. You have the professional poets, the really good ones, like Horace, uh, flattering him, worshiping him. Nothing comes back at them. He does not return the favor to even the good poets. His flattery of Augustus and his cronies is, at best, stereotypical, kind of ritual, bit over the top. But, you know, he doesn't, he obviously doesn't mean this. Does it seem like it affected the Aeneid? Does he seem like he's writing that under pressure? I don't just mean the time pressure, but the 
the the content? Is he shaping things to flatter Augustus or the imperial mission? Or or does he seem like he's independent and this is the poem that he would write no matter who he was writing it for? Uh-huh. Well, I've looked at that question. And one thing you can do to get a bit of a closer look is to think about the chronology of the Aeneid's writing as far as we know about it. That is, which books were written first and delivered first. So he actually seems to have mostly written books that were close to his heart, concerned things that concerned him. For example, he devotes a whole book, very the most famous book of the Aeneid, almost entirely to a romantic tragedy. And that's the story of, of Dido and Aeneas. Mm. This has got nothing to do with the glory of Rome. Right. It, it, in, it in fact sets on a tragic pedestal the leader of Rome's iconic enemy, Carthage. And even to an extent justifies Carthage's hatred of Rome because Aeneas leaves Dido. She curses him and all of his descendants and his nation to come. And um, he has left her in a pretty weeny manner. Um, he's uh, um, <laughs> a reviewer of, of my Aeneid translation, the first one, calls Aeneas the biggest horse's patoot in literature because of this, <laughs> because of this episode. So this, you know, this episode leaves the, the mythical founder of the Roman nation looks pretty bad. Hmm. So uh, there, there are a number of places in the Aeneid where he seems to go off the track of, of imperial propaganda and to be writing something more like the opposite. Yeah. And then he delivers the patriotic portions, the portions that flatter the emperor and his family. He delivers them in big, heavy dollops. For example, Aeneid 6, the, the underworld journey. So toward the end of that book, you get the enormous patriotic, or it's not enormous, it's, it's only a few hundred lines, but it's a, a heavy helping of patriotic bombast. Mm. Almost right at the end of this book, there's a, a lament for a, a promising heir to Augustus's power who, who died young, right. um, a nephew of him who, who died young and tragically. But do you are you saying that it's like uh, it's almost like those passages are in brackets, and then the rest of the poem he can write about what he wants after he gets the the excessive praise out of the way? Well, all this is speculative, mm -hmm. but there is data to back it up, and um, you can say, well, it happened this way, maybe this way. But to me, the data says that the Aeneid was not a patriotic outpouring. It was a, and not a propagandistic outpouring, let alone service to Augustus's particular power mm. and, you know, particular political agenda. The need was more like a negotiation. Yeah. And it was a negotiation that Virgil largely won because Virgil, for a long time, the Vir Virgil was holding all the cards. Yeah. He was the only poet in the world who could undertake this. And it was going to be gorgeous. 
whatever the content. So Augustus would, you know, have to present this. It had it had so much advanced publicity that there was no way to say, oh yeah, well scratch that, forget about that. That didn't turn out well. <laughs> um, that that you know kind of didn't happen, or we lost it, or um, there was there was no way to say that. You had to present as a masterpiece whatever emerged. Yeah. And for most of this project, Virgil's holding most of the cards. Because if you if you put too much pressure on him, he's going to claim that, okay, he can't work. Listen, he can't be coming to Rome and delivering the work 500 lines at a time. He's going to go to pieces if that happens to him. And his health is poor. That seems to have been a factor, too. So he seems to be able to, to say, look, let me do it. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. And to kind of set his terms. Yeah. Set his terms. And I said, okay, I need, I need money. I need to travel here. I need to spend time here. Uh, I, I need these secretaries to, to help me. And I mainly need to be left alone. Let me do this. So he got away with this. But once the poem is substantially done, that is done to an acceptable level, done except for polishing, his leverage is gone. And then the crisis comes. Hmm. What's the crisis? The showdown. Oh, okay. The crisis, yes, <laughs> known by the historical facts. We think that, that Suetonius was quite correct in this because here, here you come into the political history of Rome and all of this is verifiable from a lot of other sources. So Augustus goes on long diplomatic mission. So he's going you know, way into the east. So Virgil is left to, in Italy to his own devices. So after Augustus is gone for a certain amount of time, Virgil declares that, well, he is going on a long trip through the, the Eastern Mediterranean, and he is going to use this, this time to put the final touches on the Aeneid. Then he is going to retire and study philosophy. So off he goes. And I cannot conceive that he had permission to go on this trip. <laughs> Because his life was quite precious. Yeah. Um, this was the, pers- the only person who could finish this poem. So to have him start off with all the dangers that travel entailed in the ancient world, uh, all the chances for sickness, for accidents, for shipwrecks, anything you know that could happen to him. He said, I don't think Augustus would ever have let him do this. But he did it when Augustus was gone. Very shortly into his trip, Virgil is in Athens. And he, Suetonius blandly puts it, meets up with Augustus there. So Augustus is on his way home. And I think he just, he grabs Virgil by the scruff of the neck and he is very angry. (laughs) For trying to get away. For trying to escape Rome, for trying to (laughs) uh, escape his his duties under patronage, for for trying to escape the obligations that he has after receiving so much money and so much attention and so much exposure. Virgil heads home with Augustus. He is already sick on the voyage back, and he dies in the Italian port of um, Brindisi or or Brundisium, the the Latin name. Hmm. And as he's dying... He's demanding that the manuscript be burned. Yeah, so that's true? 
I, I heard that his dying wish was that the Aeneid should be destroyed. And I didn't know if that was one of those legends that had come up afterwards or if that was something that's got some some basis in a, a reputable source. It's in Suetonius. Mm, mm-hmm. So it's in the earliest biographical source. Yeah. Or sort of comprehensive biographical source that we have. Yeah. And it's weird enough and disturbing enough that I don't think people would make it up. And it's not consistent with the rest of the story, the propagandistic story about Virgil's life. And and that story concentrates on how beloved he was, how famous he was, how attached people were to him in many ways, both as a genius and personally. And he seems to have been, he seems actually to have been a pleasant, personable person, somebody people liked being around as long as he was willing to be there. Do you think he wanted it destroyed because he didn't think it measured up or it was an artistic sensibility that that made him think it should be destroyed? Or was he angry at Augustus or what was what do you think motivated that wish? Well, you have to allow for some delirium Mm, here. mm -hmm. Uh, He may not have been in his his right mind uh, at this point, but what's expressed um, you know, when somebody is, say, off it, you know, um, who, who's raving on drugs or, or, you know, in an extreme psychic state of, of any kind, it might be the repressed emotional truth. Mm, yeah. That's what I would, in this case, certainly. Or I guess if he knew he was dying, he might think, well, it's incomplete and only I can complete it and and it's... I can't stand to think that it's going to survive me in this form that someone else will either complete or it'll live as kind of an imperfect thing. Well, as it turned out, it was not meddled with. Mm. They mm-hmm. didn't complete the half lines or the incomplete lines. They they didn't complete them. They yeah. just left them. And nobody, the fact was that nobody believed they could improve on his work. Mm-hmm. So if he thought, oh, you know, it'll be ruined, then he was factually wrong. He had no basis for thinking that. Also, there's the question of copies. Um, The people who were, all of his assistants, his literary assistants, and his handlers were not working for him. They were working for the emperor. Mm -hmm. They were answerable to the emperor, ultimately. So it's not conceivable to me that there weren't many copies of each latest version. Yeah. And that they weren't in secure places. Right. And he was able to do, he would have been able to do hardly any work on it during his voyage, which was only a few weeks long. And it was a voyage, you know, it's very hard, very, very hard in the ancient world to work while you travel. So uh, I think it was substantially done, nearly identical when he left Italy and when he died and that, that there were a number of copies, so that his demand that it be destroyed, and that physically destroyed, so he's calling for his scroll cases as if he wants to burn them on the bed, yeah. <laughs> or on the floor next to the bed. You know, he wants to, he wants to see these papers, these scrolls burning. But <laughs> I think he wants that for his own satisfaction, and if he's in his right mind at all, he understands that this is not a decree about the fate of his work. Yeah. Did you come away from this experience satisfied 
Or was it, did you find yourself running into all of these open questions and wishing that you knew more? What, what was it like to write the biography of Virgil? Oh, yes, of course. It's, it was very frustrating. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't satisfied and I always wanted more information. Yeah. And and some of the reviewers have been really mean. Oh. Some of them some of them have said, you know, how to write a biography without any biographical information. <laughs> um, so Well, I think you've just sort of answered that with our conversation so far. It's been so fascinating. Just examining these questions has been worthwhile. And I can imagine that people who come to the book are going to feel the same as it's tantalizing. Uh huh. I think I, I was doing for myself in the end, very satisfying work during this so-called post-truth era. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because we are confronting two things at the same time and very traumatically. One of them is the fragility of truth. Yeah. The ease with which real things can be falsified. Right. And at the same time, we have a greater ability to construct and reconstruct reality. We have a greater ability than any time in the history of the world to know things. Mm-hmm. And I, as a translator, I've taken constant advantage of, of our ability to know. And I've pitied the inability to know of, you know, many generations of readers and translators before us. Right. They didn't have reference books, let alone electronic reference books. Yeah. yeah. You know, if they decided they had to know that the the complete truth about knowable truth about a particular word, they would have had to get on that donkey and go to the nearest monastery <laughs> and dig for yeah. manuscripts of this author and other authors. And, you know, that, that might be a lifetime project yeah. um, to do what I can right. do in seconds here. I yeah. was just doing it this morning on my present book project. I can know exactly as much as is knowable about yeah. a particular word. So there was something satisfying for you in clearing away all of the extra and all of the unknowns and kind of reducing things down to just what can be stated with certainty and and a feeling that there's there's something valuable and even noble about being willing to look truth or or what is known for certain uh squarely in the face like that yeah. Now, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that much at all is known about a Virgil's life for for certain, you know. But but things are many things are coherent. Mm-hmm. Many things are plausible. You have to be satisfied with that in place of a certified truth, you know. In many in many things. Yeah, and to be aware that that's what you're getting. To not to not mm-hmm. try to sugarcoat that, and you know, to not try to say. Uh, well, we're we're just going to, as you mentioned, with some of the critics who insist on Virgil always being a genius or, you know, to insist that we do have more of the life than we actually have. There's something I can take some comfort in knowing that just like with everything else in life, we have to live with some uncertainty. Right. Yeah. I got my really hard training in scholarly modesty mm. when I produced a new translation uh, with extensive footnotes of the Gospels. Mm. And there you're treading on a lot of feet. Yeah, um, right. You are, you are 
working with very precious material, precious to millions of people. Mm-hmm. But I think you, you have to be both modest and courageous about it in saying, well, on balance, I think this. Mm-hmm. And I cannot believe that this is factual because, look, it just doesn't fit together with other things. Yeah. Okay. Well, the book is called Virgil, The Poet's Life. The author has been my guest. Sarah Rudin, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Well, thank you. It's, it has been wonderful. Thank you. Mm. Okay. That was Sarah Rudin. And finally today, we hear from Tom Holland. After he and I discussed his own life as a novelist and uh, now a historian of the ancient world and other worlds as well, I asked him this special question. Okay, we're joined by historian Tom Holland, expert in the ancient world and other eras. He's also a novelist with a taste for vampires and Lord Byron. I am very interested to hear your answer to this question, although we're kind of springing it on you a little bit, so you haven't had that much time to prepare. We'll see how it goes. Tom, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. Yeah, I mean, that is a challenging question to have sprung on you. Uh, Mm. There are lots of books that I particularly love that I've read many times over. I was kind of tempted to say Boswell's Life of Johnson, Mm. which is Mm -hmm. my favorite biography. And the reason for that is that uh, Boswell is so good on evoking Johnson's fear of death. And I feel that I would, you know, if it's going to be the last book I'm going to read, it'll probably be in the shadow of death. And I think that Johnson's courage and he manages to make the moral sympathetic and appealing so i i'm tempted to say that but i'm going to go with something altogether more egocentric which is that you interviewed me about my most recent book pax which is a third in a, a a trilogy of books that i've written so far on the history of the roman empire and my ultimate ambition is to complete that history by going right the way up to the 6th century when Rome becomes depopulated. Mm. Um, so I'm thinking, how many more books on, do I need to write to get there? Maybe maybe three, maybe four. Um, I was kind of thinking, I've got plenty of time to do that. And then I suddenly thought, oh my God, it's 25 years since <laughs> I've written my first one. <laughs> and I'm 55, so do the math. <laughs> Am I running out of time? Right. So I'm kind of imagining, you know, with my last on my last day of life, I depopulate Rome, lay down my pen, and die. Yeah, we've had authors who have kind of suggested that they want their last book to be the book they've they've written after they've finished it, but before the reviews have come in. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I think, you know, the joy you get from writing the last sentence of the book is so enormous that it might, um, it's the only thing I can imagine that would ease the dread of actually dying. Right, right. A great relief and a great joy, a great feeling of accomplishment. <laughs> yes. So you die happy. <laughs> now, you talked about how your view of Romans has kind of shifted since you wrote Rubicon until you wrote Pax. Do you anticipate a, a deeper understanding of Romans as you continue, or are you just looking forward to covering the highlights of yeah, those sure. eras? Yeah, because the great the great joy of uh, I think of of 
of writing history is that the process of writing enables you to understand your subject more deeply. I mean, mm-hmm. if it didn't, it would you'd be wasting your time. Yeah. I think writing history should be a process of discovery or is nothing. Right. I'm guessing that we'll have a few listeners who will be thinking that their last book that they hope they will ever read will be the book that you've written. <laughs> well, that's very kind of them. That's what they're thinking. I doubt it myself, but bless them if they are. Okay. Tom Holland, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Hmm. That was a wonderful answer. Oh, whenever the guests say bye-bye, that makes me a little bit sad to have to hang up the phone. I have so much fun talking to them, talking to them as I did with both Tom Holland and with Sarah Rudin. My thanks to them, of course, for joining me today. You can't go wrong with those two. Their books are wonderful. Okay, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>